I don't know how many of you have been James Bond fans, but I, I guess I've seen about every James Bond movie that has come out. And I remembered one in particular was entitled, You Only Live Twice. And I can't remember the exact words, but it was something you, you live uh, once in your heart, I think it was, and the other in your dreams. So they're talking about two lives. Well, today I'm going to talk about two lives. I'm going to talk about our physical lives, and I'm going to talk about our spiritual lives. And why we should aspire to the kingdom of God. Remember, this uh, Feast of Tabernacles is a representation of the millennium, and we can come here for eight days and have peace, tranquility, happiness, and joy, just as a very small sample of what it's going to be like in God's kingdom. So let's first ask this question then. If we want to look at our physical lives, I would entitle this sermon, Our Two Lives. If we're going to look at our physical lives, what is this physical life and how long does it last? Well, notice here in Job 14, verse number 1. Man that is born of woman of a woman is a few days. Now, when you're a teenager and you're thinking, I can remember when I was a little kid, I just I could hardly wait to get to be 21. Well, I thought when you got to that magic age of 21, boy, that was really it. And I can tell you, 21 has gone by so fast. Any of you who are up there in years, uh, you just look back, where did it go? I mean, it's unreal. It goes so fast when you become an adult. And it is indeed few, very few. So a man that is born of woman is a few days. And then notice what it says here about this human experience. Full of trouble. Full of trouble. Now we have, of course, moments, we have our good moments and we have our bad moments, but we certainly have our share of troubles, don't we? That goes along with the turf, if I can use that expression. Psalm 39 and verse number 5. Psalm 39 and verse number 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine ages as nothing before thee. Verily, man at his best state is altogether vanity. In other words, without God and without understanding the purpose of life and where we're going and what it's all about, the word vanity means futility, emptiness. So when you get done, what do you have? I was looking at the Sunday paper, and there was a section in here, called Weekend Post-Fall Books, and so they're advertising books. And I, I normally don't read things like this at all, but when I soak my feet in cold water to cool them off, I don't have anything to do, so I end up reading all kinds of things I normally wouldn't read. And, and so I started reading this article, and it's telling about a British colonel who decided that he was going to be a, set up an, an, an African empire. I'll just read a couple of short excerpts on this. He spent prodigious amounts of energy as well as money building up his estate. In addition to the main house, a considerable mansion of several stories and towers, he built numerous outbuildings for his farming operations, houses for his managers and workers, a school, a hospital, a gathering hall, road, bridges, and eventually an airstrip. He had over a thousand employees working for him. 
And then he died in 1967, I believe, at the age of 83. Well, the reason that the, this book came to the, this uh, particular article came to the attention of the writer is that she was down um, interviewing Kenneth Kuanda, who was the first president of Zambia, and she was waiting for a plane, and she ran into this white, huh, this white guide, uh, guide, a white hunter, and he started telling her about his grandfather. And this man I'm reading about here was his grandfather. And so he decided to take her out there to visit that, uh, that former empire that this uh, English, very high-ranking elite colonel had built. After a long journey, they arrived at his grandfather's African dream. It was in some disrepair. Nobody lived in it anymore, although Mark's brother and his Canadian wife still lived in a house, small house on the estate and maintained what they can. The big house is filled with furniture, books, and art, plus a treasure trove of letters and documents. Now, what's the lesson here? All is vanity. He spent his life building this dream, and he built this big empire. He died, and now what is it? Run down, disrepair. That's life. It is an unusual person that can build some kind of a um, foundational enterprise and then keep it living long after his death. That has happened in some cases, but in an individual case like this, it doesn't. So that's why it says, man at his best state is altogether vanity. Just empty, empty and meaningless. 1 Peter 1, verse number 24. 1 Peter 1, verse number 24. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is a flower of grass. Well, men try to get around that today because they make all kinds of artificial plants that last all year long. But what happens generally to most plants? They just go through this short cycle. We enjoy them while they're there. Then they're gone. And that's what man is compared to. That's what this physical life is. James 4, verse number 14. You know, we need to be thinking about things like this because even though uh, this here is a representation of the millennium, what we're looking forward to uh, is, is something far greater than this physical human life. James 4, verse 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So this is the physical life. This is the life we were all born with. None of us sat up there and said, God, I want to live this human experience and place me here now and make me what I am. We never had a thing to do with it, did we? Yet we find ourselves in this particular status and uh, there's not a thing we can do about it except for the fact that if God has given us the truth, it is a tremendous advantage and that's what we're going to deal with when we get to the spiritual life. Now let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 19. That which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go one to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. I've commented on this before, but I can remember so vividly my father describing this to me because he was a deputy sheriff 
in Montana for about 20 years, even during the days of the Depression. And this incident happened back in the 20s. A cowboy came through the country, sagebrush country out there, and he came to town. And he told my dad he'd found a grave out there. So they went out there, and what had happened is that uh, somebody had killed a man and just put him in a shallow grave and threw some rocks over it. But uh, coyotes had gotten in there and dug it up, and the smell, as this cowboy was going through there, he could smell the smell, and he checked it out and found this man. So they went out there to dig it out. My dad said the man's body was just like jelly. And every time he took a shovel full, he would gag. And he said he, he, for six months afterwards, every time he thought of it, he gagged. That's how bad it was. That's his human body. That's what happens to this human body when it dies. What do we do with human bodies when, we, when they die? We inter them as rapidly as possible, don't we? But I can tell you, if there's anything that will ever imp impress you on the, uh, the futility of man and the corruption of man, it's to see a dead body that has not been properly preserved. Psalm 49, verse number 12. Nevertheless, man being in honor, and man is honored because he does have a status tremendously higher than that of animals, but even though he's honored, he abides not. With his fine intellect and his capabilities and his, his, his brain power and his accomplishments on this earth, and... Uh, what animal can even remotely begin to compare with man, and yet he doesn't abide? His life is very short. All of our lives are very short. Now, as a young person and a teenager, you won't think that. I had to laugh the other day because my granddaughter was telling me about her brother. And all he loves to do and all he lives for is fishing. Oh, I think that's great. But he was telling, I don't know if I got the story 100% straight, but he was telling her that, that when he died, he hoped he would die with a heart attack while he was fishing. <laughs> so it shows, you know, even youngsters, you know, get to thinking about that. But I mean, this, this life is very, very short. And we have to realize it. So, as we read here in verse number 20, of this same chapter, man that is in honor and understands not is like the beast that perish. Now, what about a man who has understanding? He's going to perish too. But there's a little different category that he's placed in. That's what this text is really differentiating here. It's differentiating between a man who, who has understanding and one who doesn't. Because one who doesn't is just like a beast that perishes. perishes. But one who has, ah, there's something else that comes into the picture. So uh, what is this physical life and how long does it last? Psalm 89, verse number 47. Remember how short my time is. It's short. For some people, it's a lot shorter than others. There was a young boy that we knew years ago back up in my home state, and he was lived in a neighboring town, and uh, he had a congenital heart disorder. And his parents, uh, you know, I guess that, you know, he probably would have died regardless of what he did, but they let him play basketball on, on the neighboring town's basketball team, and I was really surprised that they let him do that. But uh, that was about, he was about 17 or 18 years of age when he played basketball. He didn't die from basketball, but he died at about age 21 of that heart disorder. 
I was in a uh, garage uh, getting my automobile repaired, and they were playing a TV show there, and they were sponsoring little children that have cancer. And the lady was sitting next to me. She didn't know me from Adam. And she looked over and she said, isn't that awful? Those little children get that cancer. And I said, yes, it is. indeed it is. But I said, I can tell you something. The Bible says the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Her mouth dropped open. She said, wow, do you really know the Bible? <laughs> well, it is true. We often suffer from the result of what our parents have done. And people's lives are cut short. Many of them are cut short. But we're going to see here, even when they live a long time, they're not necessarily happy and productive lives. Psalm 103, verse number 15. As for man, his days are as grass as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. We read that very similar comment in the book of James. Back to Psalm 89 and verse number 48. What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? You know, the Egyptians tried to bypass that. So what they did is, that's what the whole embalming procedure was all about. It was pre to preserve this physical body so that it went to Ramadan or Rama, whatever place they call it, it would still... It would still be in its, its physical shape, and this man could live for all eternity like this. And then if you go to certain societies, when people die, they'd put them in the, in the grave, and then they'd put all of their possessions in there with them. In fact, one Chinese emperor, I forget the actual amount of square acres he had, but he had acres and acres of possessions underground and buried so that when he died, those would all go with him. It just shows you how misled human beings can really be. Psalm 90, verse number 10. The days of our lives are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. So what it's saying is, average, if we, if we, if we lived a halfway decent life, uh, we'll, we'll get to age 70. Now if we go beyond that, it can get a whole lot worse. We had to watch my father-in-law deteriorate. And he had a series of little strokes, and he finally got to a place he couldn't talk. And when he would eat his food, the, this little, whatever they call this little valve down there, didn't work, and his food would go into his lungs. So this, this is his physical life. Psalm 103, verse number 16. For as the wind passes it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. I've often thought, what would it be like if some of those pioneers could come through our countryside today and see those old landmarks and the things that they saw when they came through there 100 or 150 years ago. Those landmarks would still be there. They'd be the same. But they'd be astounded at the roads because what people don't realize that most of the major highways that are in this country today were in for formerly Indian trails. And what were Indian trails? They were big game trails because the big game animals always took the easiest route to get where they could go. And everything was practically laid out in advance. The major highways and interstates once were those, those game trails. And yet, if the people came back and saw the actual land itself, except where in, we find cities where men have dabbled in them, they would see essentially the same that they saw. That doesn't change. But those men have come and gone, haven't they? 
So what do we get out of this physical life? I think we all realize it is a training ground, of course. That's what it's all about. But if you just look at it physically, what do we get out of it? Ecclesiastes 11, verse number 8. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, and there's very few men that fit in that category, but if that happens, they, 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 they uh, rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. They shall be many. That's what we go through in this physical life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse number 22. I'm not trying to be morbid. I just want us to realize that when we're here celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, we're looking, we're looking at something far beyond this present physical life. Here we read in Ecclesiastes 2, verse number 22. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. So here was this, here was this Englishman, this English colonel, and what, what happened in the end? For all the labor and the work that he did. And that's just one case of probably millions that we could cite if we knew them all. Job 14, verse number 10. Man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? That is, he expires. People have this habit of using passing away. They say so-and-so passed away. And I'll tell you where that comes from. That's the idea that your soul has passed away to heaven. Now, if you understand it from the viewpoint that you're just passed away, that is, your breath has left you, and that's what happens when you die, well, that's, that's all right, that's understandable. But uh, the idea that you have some kind of a soul that flits up to heaven and lives after you die is not in the Bible at all. It's a pagan concept. Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 7. Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. Years ago, during the Korean War, I had a chance to be sent to signal school. And I ended up as a high uh, radio repairman on a very high frequency radio relay station in Germany. But I remember the, one of the first classes I attended in that radio school, and they taught us the electron theory. And I was astounded. Because what we learned in that is that every single thing is made out of atoms. This clock is atoms, this iron is atoms, this wood is made up of atoms, this book is made up of atoms, and I'm made up of atoms, and you're made up of atoms. The only thing that makes one thing differ from another is the number of uh, protons and, and, uh, and electrons that, uh, that, circul uh, that circulate us around the, the center of it. Now, they have found out, of course, that there are even smaller particles than that by far. I mean, it's advanced considerably. But, you know, that's all this human body is. All it is is a series of uh, how, many, how many millions and billions of, electron, of, uh, of atoms because both liquids and minerals are atoms. And our body is about, what, 90% water? Now, what happens? Just as it says here, returns back to the dust. The water eventually all goes somewhere, and what is left in the physical part deteriorates and goes back to the dust. That's what this human life is. 
Luke 12, verse number 20. Here's a man that puts his store and his stock in the physical things of this life. And uh, he, he was going to sit back. And this is exactly what happens. I don't know how many times this happens to people. But he said, so, verse 19 here, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, now he said he could relax. He had it made and he could coast the rest of his life through. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? You know, some of the most hatred that develops among families is over who's going to get the goods after somebody dies. I mean, there have been people who have virtually destroyed their entire families over bitterness and rancoring over who gets what. And this is what it leads to. So we have to realize the benefits of this physical life are, when you stop and consider it overall, they're few. And no one is going to take, it, uh, take his possessions with him, although some people seem to think they are. And uh, in the long run, if we go back here, for example, to Ecclesiastes 5, we'll notice one, state, one more statement here, Ecclesiastes 5 and verse number 15. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor. That's this physical life. That's what we get out of it. Now, let's take a look at the spiritual life. We have a spiritual life, God says, to those he is called to a knowledge of the truth. It puts man on a little different level. It doesn't mean that he's at a superior level than anybody else, nor does it mean he's any better. It means he has a greater responsibility, but it gives him an insight and an understanding and a capability that he does not have in the physical realm. And God's the one who's responsible for that. 1 Timothy 1, verse number 15. 1 Timothy 1 and verse number 15. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, of whom I am, I am the chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first. Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should, should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So when we begin to look at the spiritual realm, what are we looking at? We're looking at something beyond this physical realm. And one of the worst things that happens to human beings is they look at this physical realm and they put this physical realm as the all-important, all-consuming thing and to, to them, they completely lose sight of the spiritual. The physical realm is not worth that much. And if a man is in the process of developing himself spiritually, he's going to find out in the end that this physical life was nothing more than a training ground. What he does with it. And where he places his priorities. Whether he places them on the physical or whether he places them on the spiritual. Galatians 5, verse number 22. Here's a little sample of the spiritual life. Now, we don't always experience this fully, totally, all the time. We do experience it a great deal of the time. 
And it's a whole lot better than what it used to be. I can tell you what I was like before I was ever converted. Boy, I was like a caged lion. You'd rub me the wrong way and I would just as soon slug you as look at you. Now, that's not the way to live. This physical life, I can tell you, if God hadn't called me to a knowledge of the truth, I firmly believe I'd have been in a penitentiary, probably for, for manslaughter or murder. So you just have to realize that there's a tremendous blessing and advantage that comes for, from, the, from the knowledge of the truth. And here's what you read of it. The fruit of the Spirit is, and the spiritual man has these to a certain degree, not perfectly, not all the time as much as he should, but he certainly has a degree of love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. They're in the process of being crucified. They're in the process of dying. They're not completely dead yet. And as long as we have this physical human, human life, there will be a good measure of that, uh, that carnal nature there to struggle against. Romans 14, verse number 17. For the kingdom of God, see, this is what we're looking forward now. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. If you ever spend time in the military, I'll, I'll tell you what you find out in there. Soldiers think of two things. Food and sex. That's all they live for. And the Bible uses meat and drink here. Same thing. That's what the physical world evolves around. Physical things. But what is the kingdom of God? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We have a sample of it. God is giving us a sample of it here and now. Are we employing that in our lives and are we experiencing it? Or are we not? If we're not, something's wrong. Something's wrong somewhere. Romans 8 Verse number 5. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. I don't know if any of you saw the newspaper they passed around this morning, but I just looked at the front page, and uh, if you look on the right-hand side of the bottom of the front page, I'm not even going to tell you what it discussed, but I mean, I was shocked. They'd put that kind of stuff right on the front page. It's just pitiful. And this is what people have their minds on. These are the things of the flesh. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And down to verse number 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. If it dwell in you. Now something's wrong if it just comes and goes. If it's in little spurts, and you do all right for a while, then you go right back to the doldrums of despair and carnality, and, uh, and you don't make any progress, and then maybe you'll get a little jolt, and you'll get a little spurt up again, and then you're buoyed up again. You know, I don't think God intended us to live a spiritual life like a, a, a ball bouncing up and down. We should be reaching a level, a level of, uh, of improvement and then gradually going upward. And then notice particularly verse number 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, 
He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. What is that text telling you? That text is telling you that there will be no resurrection from the dead unless you have God's spirit. If you do not have God's spirit, there will be no resurrection. Because the very way you're resurrected, it says here, he shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. By that very means. That's why it's so important to recognize the value of being a spiritual man as opposed to just being strictly a physical man. For the afternoon service of the Sabbath day, we have a vocal duet. Mrs. Donna Murray and Mr. Darren Murray, accompanied by Miss Patsy McCulley. Galatians 6, verse number 8. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So there's the contrast and there's the difference. We have to realize the importance of being a spiritual man and, and recognizing the benefits that come to us as a result of being called. Think back for a moment, if you will, what your life was like before you came to a knowledge of the truth. You know, most people who have a who, who will only live in the physical realm, they can get up really excited about physical things. And they can be involved in physical activities of one type or another. And at the very time those activities are going on, they're, they're having an enjoyable time. And then what happens as soon as that activity comes to an end? The doldrums stay in, don't they? The boredom sets in. When I was a young man, I punctured my right eye in an accident while I was cutting timber when they were building Hungry Horse Dam in Montana. My eye was so infected by the time I got to, to Billings, it was the color of a light bulb that is, that is not turned on, that frosty color and it was as big as an egg sticking out of my, my head. The doctor gave me a million units of penicillin right in the eyeball itself. I lost most of the sight of this eye, but I didn't lose the eyeball. Contrary to what Garner Ted told a group at Big Sandy one time, he told about 15,000 people that I had a glass eye. I do not have a glass eye. <laughs> anyway, I was in the hospital 30 days on my back. And adjacent to me in the hospital bed was a very high-ranking insurance man. In fact, his brother-in-law was a, a very high-ranking governmental official uh, in the state of Montana. And he came there to hunt antelope. And when he was out on his antelope hunt, he had a heart attack. And there he was in the bed next to me in the hospital having suffered this heart attack. And he was depressed. And one day his wife came in there and she started talking to him. And he started sobbing. He was probably a man in his late 50s, early 60s by that time, and he was started sobbing. And he started talking to her, and he, he said, what was life all about anyway? He said, look, all that I've done, and look what's happened to me. And she sat there, and she tried to comfort him, and she said, well, dear, don't you remember all the wonderful times we had when we went to the Bahamas, and we did this and we did that? And uh, she tried her best to encourage him, and, and it went on there for a half hour. He was, just, he was absolutely demoralized and just uh, crushed practically. That was the end of his, that was, that, that's what he saw as a fruition of his life. 
Well, I saw him a number of years after that. He took a liking to me, and he wanted me to come and visit him. So I went down uh, several years later and visited him once in his insurance office there, and uh, he was still going strong and everything. But what it illustrated to me is it didn't make any difference how successful you were, how wealthy you were and all that. You still have these same heartaches and doldrums and depressions that everybody else does. Money is not going to make you happy. Happiness is a frame of mind. And so it illustrated very plainly to me that even though I didn't know the truth at that time, it sure illustrated to me that uh, what appears to be really high and successful in this world may not be that case at all. These people have the same problems everybody else does. Galatians, as I said here, verse 6, 8, chapter 6 and verse number 8, if you, if you sow to the Spirit, you shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. But if you sow, if you sow to the flesh... What's the end result going to be? It says here, corruption. Corruption. That's the end result of it. Romans 6, verse number 22. I remember my mother was 88 when she died. And her mother lived in 91. I don't think I'll ever see that, but I can tell you this. I, I've, I've had my goal set at 70. Now, if you start cringing, that's only two years from now, so Mr. Carter better be developing. <laughs> I thought, boy, if I could just make 70, I'd be tickled pink because that's my three score and 10. Uh, I don't have any major problems outside of this diabetes thing, and I've just got to really watch my diet like a hawk and, and really be careful. But uh, I remember her sitting there, the poor lady, She'd had three major surgeries. When she was a young girl, she came over here from Sweden. She couldn't speak a word of English. She was 13 years old. She came with her brother. He was 16. They couldn't speak a word of English. By the time he died, he was probably worth, at certain days, money. He was a millionaire because he had two or three cattle, ranching cattle spreads in Montana there. And uh, when she was this young girl, she slept with a Lutheran minister's daughter who had tuberculosis, and my mother contracted tuberculosis. And I remember her coughing all the time. She'd cough. And I would say to her, well, why don't you do something about that cough? And she'd just cough. And one day she coughed up blood. And we knew right then and there that it was serious. She went to the hospital. They sent her to the state TB sanitarium. She spent three years there. And they couldn't cure the TB out of her system, so they cut her upper left lung out. And in the process, removed two ribs. When she was a young woman, about age 35, she had a full hysterectomy and an appendectomy. And years later, that returned and she had to go in there and cut out all the adhesions. I don't know how the woman survived as long as she did. But what happened was, this back of hers began to just develop into a, like a, a form of a crooked snake. And when she was elderly, and 88 years old, she was all hunched over like that. She had to wear clothes that, that hid that, and she was in pain constantly. And I remember her looking at me one day there, and she said, Oh, son, why can't I die? I just wish I could die. Well, when she died, she went very fast. My sister called me up, and she said she is going very rapidly. She took her over to the hospital. She sat in the hospital bed that morning, and she had a meal. She was dead by noon. That's what this physical life is. It causes a lot of, lot of sorrow and a lot of heartaches, and a lot of pain. Romans 6, verse number 22. 
you, if you're a spiritual man, here's what it says here. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the life everlasting. That's the spiritual man. That's the spiritual experience. That's what we should be experiencing. Revelation 2, verse number 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. What do we have to overcome? You know what we have to overcome? We have to overcome ourselves. We are our own worst enemies. There's not a single person on the face of this earth that's more dangerous to you than you. And more dangerous to me than me. That's what we've got to recognize. And that is the enemy that's got to be destroyed. That's that human nature. That's that carnal man. That's that physical man with all of its pulls and everything in it that's contrary to God's law. But the Bible says, He that is overcoming and is enduring to the end, the same shall be saved. I'd say the biggest problem that we all have, maybe there are a few exceptions to the rule. There probably are. But I think I can generally say that the, the, the biggest problem most of us have is controlling this tongue. What happens the very moment we get irritated? We're all guilty of it. And yet the Bible says the man that can control his tongue is a perfect man. I can, that's a sign. I can tell you, if you can control your tongue, the Bible says you're perfect. Which implies very few will ever really be able to do that. But that's what we've got to overcome. 1 John 2, verse number 17. The world passes away and the lust thereof. You know, when you go through this human life, you go through various uh, eras or times that, of, of interest and things that change over the years. I can remember when I was a boy growing up, I had, I had two all-consuming interests, hunting and fishing. Then when I got into high school... I still had interest in those things, but then basketball came on the scene. And by the time I got out of high school, I was offered a grant to a college to go to, if I wanted to go to college, to play basketball. Well, I didn't choose to do that. I joined the Army instead. Later on in life, uh, when I was called and converted to a knowledge of the truth, I had an all-consuming desire and burning interest in the truth. And you know what Dr. Hay told me one time? He said, of all the college men and students I ever met in my life, he said, I never saw one that had more zeal than you did. And I did for years. Until I began to realize, I hope I've never lost the zeal to God, but I can tell you, if you, went, if you had gone through it, you know what God has actually done in his church? He has, Jesus made the promise. He said, if it's my church, I'm paraphrasing this, of course, and I'm wording it differently, but what he said in essence is, if it's my church, and it doesn't bear any fruit, I'm going to cut it down. But he said, if it does bear fruit, I'm going, to, I'm going to prune it. We've been going through some pruning. And he's pruned again and again. And he's probably going to prune some more. It's just like when we met with our first Sabbath over there in November, we had a little group there, and I said, welcome to the downsizing. Because that's what's been happening. God has allowed these circumstances to be set up to prune his people. And they'll probably, it'll probably continue. 
and it'll probably continue right to the very end. I don't believe there's ever a time God is going to allow us to be able to sit back on our laurels and relax and say, well, now we can just coast right on in. We got it made. I don't think that's going to happen. So we just have to recognize, as we read here in 1 John 2, verse 17, whatever that interest we may have had, that's a wrong kind of an interest if it has not been replaced by the interest in God and in His truth, then we read here, the world passes away in the lust thereof. You know what has happened to hunting in the United States? I used to love to hunt. Well, I can tell you, I would sit there and just lick my chops and anticipate November the 15th. That was a big date. The deer season opened up in Montana. When it opened up in Montana, I mean, the schools were empty. Teachers never said a thing. Everybody just took off hunting, even, even the teachers. <laughs> Well, they have now, they have, well, I control, control, I guess is what you can say it. And it's gotten to the place now where you go hunting, it's like Cox's army out there. I mean, there are a thousand hunters and ten deer. <laughs> That's just about what's happened. So, uh, you know, the, the, every, everything has just gone downhill, really. The whole society. So, you know, when you have interests like that that are physical interests, they're short-lived. Yes, the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's going to be the thing that stays, not any physical thing. Now, one more final question here. What does the spiritual, what is the end result or what does the spiritual life really lead to? Then? What's the end result or the consequences of a spiritual life? We know what the consequences and end result of a physical life are. Corruption and death. What are the consequences of a spiritual life? Luke 18, verse number 30. What have we given up in order to obey the truth? Well, some of us have given up things. We've, we've given up families in some cases. We've given up jobs. We've given up relatives. We've given up status. Uh, we've given up acceptance. We've given up a lot of things. But here's what Jesus said. Luke 18, verse 30. Verily I say to you, there is no man that has left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake. That has happened in some cases. Who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Let me ask you this question. Have any of you ever had the personal relationship with your own physical brother that you have with these brethren in the church? Have you ever had that? My older brother was six years older than I was. And when we were little children, he never had any time for us. Later on in life, he tried. To, I didn't realize he was trying to do it, but he was trying to establish a relationship and by that time, I was so busy and tied up in the work and church and everything that, that I didn't have time for him. But I can truthfully say I never, ever had any kind of a relationship with any of my family, my physical family members, anybody, like I have with the brethren in the church. And I think you can all say the same thing. Jesus has multiplied that many, many times over. And the satisfaction and the joy that comes from that relationship is a marvelous experience. 
and wonderful to behold. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 18. While we look not at the things which are seen. You know, most people simply look at the things that are seen. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That is, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, there are many, many things that we don't see in this spiritual experience we're going through. We have to look at them, look ahead in faith. But those are the permanent things, and the physical things that people look at are only here today and gone tomorrow. Chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were destroyed or dissolved, meaning this physical body, and that's what's going to happen to it sooner or later, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Meaning we will have a spiritual body. And that's going to be an eternal body. 1 John 3 and verse number 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. See, that's what we are. We're the only, we are the potential sons of God. We're not God yet. Now, does the world recognize you? You know, you know, and I think our problem is we don't even recognize it among ourselves. Sometimes, sometimes the way we view people and, uh, and analyze people is strictly based on the physical. It's not based on the fact that we're looking at a potential son of God. And uh, that requires respect and awe. So as it says here, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. I just rewrote the article on the Trinity. And uh, what I've done with a lot of these articles, I've streamlined them, I have shortened them down, I've got out a lot of the repetition. And if you've ever been with Mr. Cole setting up a, an outline to do, a, do an article, I mean repetition is the key word. And uh, I have tried to cut these things down and smooth them up and make them move faster. And I cut this one down from 71 pages to 55 pages. But one of the things I remember in there, what was being stated by uh, one of these Trinitarians that uh, worldwide accepted as one of their leaders and teachers, and he was saying, when you read a descriptions of God in the Bible, that's not describing God. God has no shape or form. All you're describing is something that's so you can understand it. And uh, as he was asked by a party, he said, well, that's the case. He said, how can we understand anything in the Bible? And the man replied, well, the scholars are the ones that tell you what the Bible says. You can't, you can't study and figure it out for yourself. I mean, it is the saddest thing you ever saw. And yet it says here, we shall see him like he is. And if, you know, if, if we believe these Trinitarians, you know what it means? He has no shape or no form. He just exists everywhere. And he's just a kind of this undefined mass that was taught by the Hebrew, by the Kabbalists, and by the uh, Gnostics. That whole concept of the Trinity that's swallowed by these Trinitarians is nothing more than the Gnostic concept of God, the end self. Well, you read Revelation, the first chapter, and see what Jesus Christ looks like. We shall, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. He's going through this process of overcoming. And as Jesus described it here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 43, he said, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The righteous shall shine as the sun. That's in a glorified form. That's what the spiritual life leads to. Now, there's a number of statements made here in the book of Revelation. Let me touch upon these very briefly here. And this will give us just another sort of a synopsis here of what's in store for the future. Revelation 2, verses number 26 and 27. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power of the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And uh, skipping down here to chapter um, 3, let me look a little bit further here. Yeah, here's, an, here's, a, here's a few more examples here. Revelation 3, verse number 5. He that overcometh, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. And uh, verse number 10, Because you have kept the word of my patience, I'll keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell on the earth. And so we see uh, there are a number of examples here where the Bible describes the uh, blessings that come. For example, chapter 2 and verse number 7, To him that overcomes will I give to eat to eat of the tree of life. And verse number 11, he that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. So there are just a few examples. Revelation 3.12, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. So there are the promises that are given. Now just remember, we have the physical man and we have the spiritual man. What does the Bible say about the physical man? The wages of sin is death. What does the Bible say about the spiritual man? The gift of God is eternal life. 